This morning we continue in our Revive teaching series, where we're spending the summer making our way through the book of Hebrews. As we said at the beginning of this series, the book of Hebrews was written to uh, recent Jewish converts to Christianity. It's people who have been through struggles and difficult times, people whose faith maybe was not as alive as it had been in days past. The writer of Hebrews is seeking to remind them of why God's grace and goodness in Jesus is worth building your entire life around, seeking to revive them. And our hope is that it will do the same for us as we go through this book over the course of the summer. Now, because it was written to converts to Christianity from Judaism, as we said from the beginning, there are a lot of Old Testament references throughout the book of Hebrews. What the author is seeking to do is to place the paradigm for the gospel, for the good news, in a context that these readers who had grown up learning and and understanding uh, a, a Jewish worldview would have been reminded of how to think about who Jesus is. And today marks a central turning point in the book. Because we've seen how Jesus is in the lineage of the high priest Melchizedek. We've talked about how it is that God was faithful to the people of Israel. We see in like the figure of Abraham. And today the author is going to get at the very heart of how grace is understood in the Jewish faith. A sacrificial system at the temple. And yet the turning point that the author will make today is to say that in Jesus, this system has been revolutionized at an eternal and cosmic level that has changed the fabric of creation forever. Today is a celebration of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. The scripture that's going to guide us comes from Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 23. I invite you to listen and soak in God's word to us today. Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So what the author of Hebrews is assuming that we're familiar with, and I want to make certain we're familiar with it here, is that he or she is talking about the sacrificial temple system by which uh, the Jewish people found atonement for their sins. This happened on a regular basis with the sacrifice of animals, uh, bulls, uh, goats, uh, birds. Uh, it also took place with um, uh, an annual festival, one of the seven great festivals of the Old Testament, the festival of Yom Kippur, known as the Day of Atonement. Now what's important for to make sure that we understand uh, because this is a very different way than how you and I walk into covenant, is there was a strong and underlying sense to every time you entered the temple, every time you moved into the holy presence of God. The temple was the dwelling place of God, or the tent of meeting was the dwelling place of God before the temple was constructed. That there was a strong sense that you had not earned your way into the presence of God. That as we this morning confessed our brokenness, confessed our sins, that God is holy, God is pure, and something had to be done so that we could enter into the presence of God. And so there was a sense that the sacrifice of these beasts was a way of being cleansed, of atoning for the sins that we committed. It's a way of being able to move into the temple, into the tent of meeting, into the presence of God. Now, obviously things don't work that way anymore. And I just want to say, I'm kind of glad about that, right? We don't have to sacrifice anything when we walk in here uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, for many reasons, I'm glad about that. I am one of those people that is squeamish in the presence of blood of any kind. Uh, I don't like it. It makes you a great parent when your kids come to you bleeding. You're like, you got to take that to your mother. I'm about to pass out. Like, I can't, I can't deal with this. I'm the person that when they show a sports injury, and it's like, that's the most gruesome leg injury. And then we're going to show super slow motion of the breaking and the pain. I'm turning away from it. I was the last kid picked in high school biology class. It's like, we're going to dissect the frog. And I'm like, I got a paper bag. You know, trying to kind of make it through. And they're like, oh, look, Thomas, it's a female. Look at the eggs. You're like, oh, I can't handle this. You know, you know I, I just, I can't go there. So to be a priest in that system, for me personally, would be really, really difficult. It seems like a foreign concept, but I want us to talk about why, because this is actually what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. Why is this so different? And it might be tempting for us to think that it's different because we don't kind of see God in that way. We don't think of God in that way. This seems very violent. This seems very bloody. This isn't the God we like. This is Old Testament God. Old Testament God needs to work God's anger issues out. I like New Testament God. New Testament God is the peace and the grace and the serving and the loving. Old Testament God requires this kind of stuff. This isn't how I think about the world. Our God is a God who's loving. Our God is a God who welcomes us into his presence. Our God is a God who loves everybody. Our God is a God who would never ask anything like this. This isn't the kind of God I believe in, I feel drawn to. And I want to be sure today we don't make the mistake of going there, of thinking we somehow have advanced beyond the need for this sacrificial system. And it's important to see why. I think the majority cultural view that we're in today is that if there is something like a God, that that God is a force of love, and that God would never ask for anything like this. That's a, that's a, that's a distortion of how God works. Our God loves too much for this kind of act. 
But I'd submit to you that if we really stop and think about it for a minute, any God that doesn't require sacrifice in the name of how our sin works and affects the world is actually not a God worth loving because it's not a loving God. Any God that doesn't require a system of sacrifice for the sin that is in the world, who doesn't respond with outrage at the sin that exists in the world, is not a God worth following because it's actually not a God of love. I want to take an extreme example to kind of uh, show you this. I'm going to bring a quote up here, and it's by a theologian named Miroslav Volf. Uh, Miroslav Volf, if you have not heard of him before, uh, is not somebody I went and found on the, uh, the, the internet that's like some fire and brimstone, hate-filled person, and just got a quote that kind of goes with this worldview. Miroslav Volf is one of the preeminent theologians and thinkers in the world today. He is a theologian at Yale. He's from the Balkans originally, and the most recent work he has done that he got lots of funding for, and it's an amazing project that he spent years studying, is how human beings flourish. This is a wonderful theologian, a joy-filled theologian who talks about human flourishing. But having been from the Balkans, he has seen violence in the course of his life. And listen to what he writes here. Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? Because God doesn't judge? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. And listen to this. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. You see, what Miroslav Volf is pointing to is the idea that if God is not outraged by the sin, by the brokenness, by the injustice in the world, that is not love. Because all that happens is that the victims of injustice, the victims of, of hurtful words or hurtful acts, are re-victimized. Because God's looking at them going, listen, I'm just a loving God and I just kind of need you to get over it because I sort of love everybody and I'm not here to judge. It re-victimizes victims. And even if you come away from a more extreme example, think about the ways that sin is alive in your life and in my life and how it affects those around us. I have two teenagers right now, and one of the interesting things as I raise my teenagers is to realize my own shortcomings as parents, but to see the kind of extremes that you see in parenting children, and I wonder about the lifelong effects we're going to have. I see some parents, for example, who have just slotted their children into a place going, this is kind of where you are, this is sort of where you belong, you might not be the smartest kid, this is where you're just going to kind of go, and, and, and almost put a label on them that keeps them in a category that is gonna have consequences that go forward. I see a lot of other parents who is like, you have to get into this college, you have to make these kind of scores, you have to have, we're gonna make certain that your summers are spent doing all this kind of stuff. You are gonna live with a sense of stress and anxiety that is perpetual in your life so that you mean something. And that's gonna have consequences too. And imagine God looking at the children of the generations that we're raising. And I am a part of this too. 
I raise my children in all kinds of ways and that God would look at what we do to our children and it's like, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. I just need you to kind of get over it. I'm not here to judge. Is that loving? Or does that look at people who've experienced hurt and to say your hurt is fairly insignificant? Is that love? Now I'd submit to you today that any God worth following is a God who looks at injustice in the world, a God who looks at the pain that takes place in the world and who has outrage at it because God loves the world so much. And that should cause us to feel kind of two things today. The first thing it should cause us to feel is amazing. That God looks at the hurt that you and I have experienced from the day we were born until now. And God says that that hurt matters. That God pays attention to it. That God says that something's going to be done to seek to make this right. But it also, while it should make us feel amazing love, should make us feel very uncomfortable this morning. Because it also means that the hurt, that our impatience, that our gossip, that our not being generous, that our refusal to share, all the things that you and I do on a daily basis, God looks at that and says, something's going to be done about that. And if you take that seriously, that that's what a loving God does, should make you very uncomfortable. Very loved, very uncomfortable. So this is the worldview that the people uh, of Israel had, of how does God make things right? How do we get, get out of this system? Because grace needs to be done for us, but it also is necessary because of us. And so what they did is they had ways of purifying themselves purifying their nation. Now, you also saw in the book of Hebrews, when we, when we just read that, 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 that uh, the author talks about this annual cycle that the high priest would go to, to seek to purify the people. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about what that is. Um, as I said before, there's, there's seven major festivals in the Old Testament. Uh, the first is the, the festival of Rosh Hashanah, which is still celebrated uh, around the world today by uh, people of the Jewish faith. Rosh Hashanah is the new year. It's the Jewish new year. And Rosh Hashanah and the, and the Jewish New Year works very differently than our New Year. Our New Year's Eve and New Year, kind of some of the big uh, kind of party uh, celebration days, right? Um, the, 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 the way that the Jewish New Year worked is that Rosh Hashanah began a 10-day period of self-reflection and a, a sense of, conf of confession. It was a way of saying, what do I need to be asked God to forgiveness for? Ten days of sitting in that. What do we as a nation, what do we as a people, they would think, what do we need to be asking God's forgiveness for? Where have we failed to do what is right? Where have we continued to do what is wrong? And at the end of those ten days came the second festival, the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is described for the first time in the Bible in Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to walk through three different kind of readings of Leviticus 16 so that you and I can get a sense of what this atonement looked like. Because this is key to understanding why Hebrews 9 is a pivot point in the whole um, series. This is the first passage that we're going to look at. First, in uh, Leviticus 16, verses 2 through 4, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary, inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark, or he will die. For I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram 
for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and shall have the linen undergarments next to his body, fasten the linen sash and wear the linen turban. These are the holy vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. All right, so in verses 2 through 4, really quickly, what we see here is, is that there's a process where Aaron, who begins the lineage of the high priest, the tribe of Levi, uh, that, 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 that Aaron has to purify himself. This is all about how we get into the presence and into a relationship with God. So Aaron has to bathe in holy water on the Day of Atonement. That's how the day begins. He says he then has to have certain undergarments and garments that he puts on only for the Day of Atonement. As one theologian says, he has holy underwear that he has to put on. And that, the Bible's not boring, right? So he has underwear that he puts on, undergarments. He has outer garments. He has a turban. He has all of this kind of stuff that is worn only on this one day of a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. But this is about Aaron's being cleansed. All right. The next section says this. Verses 5 and 6. He, Aaron, shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Okay. Now, what happens next? After Aaron has gone through the, 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 the bathing and after he has gone through getting the right clothes and underclothes on, uh, at that moment, he has to take from the congregation, from the nation of Israel, two, three animals, two goats and a bull. And he has to bring them into the sanctuary by himself. He's the only one that can do this. Now, the priest is not perfect. No one, I, I want to say that again. I feel a need to say that again. The priest is not perfect. And nobody in the nation thought that the priest was going to be perfect. Aaron needed to atone for his own sin, as well as the sin of his household. Because they're all a part of this broken system and the brokenness in the world. And so the bull was a sacrifice as a sign of how the, the sin of Aaron and his family is atoned for. So that's why the bull is there. This is the next part, the last part that's going to come up. And, and, and this is how the day continues. He, Aaron, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, keep it up for a second. I just want to say something. Azazel is a, a, an interesting word. We don't quite know what it means. Some scholars think Azazel is like an evil spirit, like the devil. Uh, other people think that Azazel means sort of a cast out place, a wilderness place that's far away. Uh, I, I think, not that any scholar is asking my opinion, I actually think it probably means a cast out far away place, cast out into the wilderness. So uh, when it says that, um, that one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, that means to be cast out, sent away out into the wilderness. Okay? That's what Azazel means. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Okay, now, I know this is a lot, but this is really key for Hebrews, okay, to understand this. So what he's saying here is that these two goats, one of which is then, uh, when the lot falls on it, is sacrificed as a sin offering for the nation. So the bull is the sin offering for Aaron and his family. The goat is a sin offering for the nation. And then the last goat that's still alive, which you think it got the good luck, but it didn't, 
the, the last goat that's there is then presented in front of Aaron. And if you read along in Leviticus 16, what happens is, is that Aaron then places his hand on the head of this goat. And all of the sin that the people have been reflecting on for the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Aaron confesses that sin over the head of this goat. And then the sin is transferred from the people onto the goat. This is a radioactive goat now, okay, that all of the sin has been placed upon. And then a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, because Jewish people didn't want to be around this goat, but for a Gentile who believes something else, was brought in and the goat was led out of the city of Jerusalem, out into Azazel, out into the wilderness, where it was taken far, far away, because you do not want this goat wandering back into town one day, and it is then left to die out in the wilderness, and when the goat leaves, led by a Gentile, out into the wilderness, and the sin is taken away, that is when the celebration began. Not because it's a new year and we have a new start. Rosh Hashanah was the time of reflection, but because God has taken away once again. And this was an annual celebration, an annual ritual. Now, back to Hebrews 9. This is a turning point because what the author of Hebrews is wanting us to see is that the annual ritual of, of the Day of Atonement is no longer necessary. Why? Because we're better people and advanced and don't need this kind of system anymore? Absolutely not. But because Jesus is the embodiment of all that Yom Kippur proclaims. He plays every part in this story from Leviticus 16. First off, think about it. Think about what we've learned up till now. First off, he's the priest. He's the high priest in the line of Melchizedek. We've studied this before. The priest is what? The intermediary between the people and God. And so Jesus is the eternal cosmic priest interceding on our behalf in front of God. But the amazing part is he's also the sacrifice. He becomes the bull. He becomes the, the goat. He becomes the one whose blood is shed so that the people can be forgiven. But not only that, he is also the goat led away, which is where the English word term the scapegoat comes from. He is the scapegoat. He is led out of the city of Jerusalem by Gentiles, by what? Roman soldiers. And as he is taken away and dies on a cross, our sin is taken away as well. As, as Isaiah writes about him, upon him was placed the iniquity of us all. He is all of the parts of Yom Kippur. And the author is saying that if we really take this seriously, if we understand that God is not a weak God, that God is not a powerless God, that God is not a God that looks at us and goes, I just love you, everything's okay, that God loves the world too much for that, that God loves us too much, the hurts that have been inflicted upon us, God says it matters, you are somebody, you are important, the hurt that has been done to you, something's going to be done about that, God is outraged by the hurt that we have experienced, but we are all people who also hurt others in small ways and maybe in large ways, sometimes with even, without knowing of it. And God says that that has to be done as well. When we sit in the discomfort of that, of, oh my gosh, God's going to hold me account because he's a God of justice, because he's a God of love. 
then we, when we see that Jesus is the embodiment of all of the Day of Atonement, we will respond the way the people did when the scapegoat is left the city. We will celebrate. We will celebrate because the wages of sin and death have been taken away. And you and I are set free. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this gospel, this good news of your love, of the power of your love, and the power of your grace would wash over us today and revive our hearts at just how incredible it is what you've done. May our souls feel their worth this day and always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.